Hey everyone, I wanna let you know about an upcoming virtual conference that you gotta check out. In an effort to bring more thoughtful dialogue to the topic of mental health in the Latter-day Saint context, the Leading Saints team has put together the Mentally Healthy Saints Virtual Summit. We have interviewed 20 plus individuals with expertise or real life experience related to so many mental health topics, including anxiety, depression, eating disorders, ADHD, and even scrupulosity. We will discuss all these topics as they relate to the Latter-day Saint faith experience and how we can all come together to better minister to those who struggle with mental health. It's free to attend virtually, and you gotta join us. For more details on the topics that we will cover during the summit and to register for free, text the word LEAD to 474747 or visit leadingsaints.org slash mental health. Again, text the word LEAD to 474747 or visit leadingsaints.org slash mental health. My name is Aaron Hubbard. I'm the Bishop of the Sun Valley Ward in Las Vegas, Nevada. I love Leading Saints because it prepares me as Bishop to have difficult conversations with the members of our ward. It has taught me you know, what are some of the problems and struggles that the members can be having and it's provided me resources and information to better support the members in our ward. Hey, this is the Leading Saints Podcast. I am your host, Kurt Frankham. I welcome you back. Now, if you're new to Leading Saints, it's important that you know that we are a nonprofit organization with a mission dedicated to helping Latter-day Saints be better prepared to lead. And we do that through content creation, 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 creation. And that uh, like this podcast, we have thousands of articles at leadingsaints.org. We do virtual events. We do live events. We just try and do it all, cover all the areas of content in order to help Latter-day Saints be better prepared to lead. Now, this interview is part of our Mentally Healthy Saints Virtual Summit, where we do a deep dive into the concept of mental health. And from the leadership perspective, how can we be better mentors and better ministers to individuals who are struggling with mental health? What can we know? Maybe should we stop knowing in order to help individuals better uh, find a place in the church and in this gospel? So for all the details about the Mentally Healthy Saints Virtual Summit, you can go to leadingsaints.org slash mental health, and there you'll see all the details. It's free to attend and watch online. We have some exceptional presenters and speakers, 20 plus, in fact, of incredible presenters who's going to give some great information about uh, the mental health in, in the Latter-day Saint world. And so we wanted to feature one of those interviews on the podcast, and this interview is with Jeff Struer. And many of you are probably familiar with Jeff. We've had him on the podcast before. He'll do a little intro uh, in our interview, but the simplest thing is he's a therapist and he's really good at what he does. And he does a great job in this interview talking about the concept of connection, of community, of attachment, and why that's so important to an individual's mental health. I want you to pay attention to a few items on in this conversation. He talks about uh, as far as what we can do to stimulate community and connection of individuals and this concept of co-regulation and self-regulation. And man, just some powerful nuggets there. And I hope you'll appreciate this as a leader and it helps you maybe think as you're meeting with that individual who's really struggling, thinking, you know, how can we stimulate the culture connection in the, this, the life of this individual, drawing upon the ward, the quorum, the Relief Society, whatever it is. And uh, man, our, our church is in such an awesome place to do just that. So let's get to it. Here's my interview with Jeff Struer.
Welcome back to another session of the Mentally Healthy Saints Virtual Summit. And we get to welcome back a regular when it comes to virtual summits or the podcast or things. And that's Jeff Struer. How are you, Jeff? Great, Kurt. Thanks for having me back. Yeah. You know, if, we, if this was a sitcom, you're like the neighbor that always pops in maybe, <laughs> maybe five or six episodes, you know? So that's right. <laughs> so, if people aren't familiar with you and your background, what you do, maybe just give us a quick background and put yourself into context. Yeah, you bet. I'm a licensed marriage and family therapist, and I've been doing this for over 20 years. And my specialty is in working with couples, especially couples that are dealing with some major betrayal, generally like a sexual betrayal, affairs, things like that. And so I do a lot of work helping couples move out of the crisis of betrayal and build a solid relationship. I have a podcast called From Crisis to Connection. I've co-authored a lot of different things, uh, a book with Mark Chamberlain called Love You, Hate the Porn. I build online courses like the Trust Building Bootcamp and just do a lot of writing for Meridian Magazine. I've written a relationship column uh, for them for years and just try and just answer questions and spread lots of good information and offer support and hope to people. But currently, I'm just in private practice here in St. George, Utah, and doing a lot of podcasting and course creation and online stuff. So, And I love hanging out with you, Kurt, love connecting and building and collaborating and supporting people out there. Awesome. Well, I always love uh, what I learned from you and it's always inspiring and, and it's really applicable. That's what I appreciate about your style. And, and I, I would imagine t- today will go the same. So when I approached you about this mental health virtual summit, I mean, this is more of a general thing than the, the past interviews we've done, maybe more about betrayal and, uh, you know, struggles with pornography and whatnot. Right. Where did your mind go as far as topics that you could speak on? And then we, we finally concluded that you'd speak about attachment and healthy attachment and so forth. Maybe how did you get there and why is attachment such a, a crucial thing to consider when we're talking about mental health? Yeah. So, I mean, first of all, I want to stay inside my lane, right? I want to stay inside the scope of my own practice. And so when it comes to mental health, I mean, I'm not an expert on, you know, schizophrenia or mental illness or things like that. I'm not an expert on a lot of those specific psychological struggles that people have. My stuff is more relational. That's what I work with mostly are just couples and relationships. But what the research comes back to all the time over and over again is like, regardless of what kind of mental health struggle you're having, your relationships are going to be one of the biggest predictors in your well-being. And I've just seen it with my own family, with my own life. I mean, I have family members that struggle with mental health issues. I've struggled with all kinds of, you know, stressors and challenges in my life as well. And it, and it comes back to my connections in terms of helping, you know, predict how much I'm going to thrive or my loved ones are going to thrive. And so I really wanted to bring this in and talk about, of all the things we can't change, we can do something about our connections and our relationships and how we manage that. And, and that's, that's a huge predictor for our well-being. Yeah. And, and that's the thing is, you know, especially nowadays, I, I, I don't know, maybe it's just my perspective, but it seems like there's been more and more research about connection, the importance of community, and these types of things. And, and on paper, it's like, it makes sense. Like, oh yeah, of course, like we all need friends. We all need good relationships. Sometimes the application of it is really difficult, especially in the context of maybe a church leader's, uh, you know, dealing with somebody who's really having some mental health struggles and they want to sort of stimulate that connection. And you think, well, you got your ministering brothers or sisters and, you know, just talk with them or go find a friend. And it's, it's easier said than done, right? That's right. Oh, yeah. Yeah. It's easy just to say like, you know, go talk to someone, but for, you know, for, for some of us, that's, uh, you know, that's, like telling somebody to build a rocket and go into space. I mean, it's just like, <laughs> I don't know where you start with something like that. 
you know, there's a lot of pieces involved there. We'll, we'll definitely get into that. But yeah, it's, yeah. it's something we all probably like instinctively probably sense like that's probably a good idea, but how to get from here to there is it's hard for a lot yeah. of people. So let's uh, lay a foundation here. Where do we begin to uh, start understanding attachment and relationships, connection, those types of things? Yeah. So the place, the place I would start is just sort of making space for the, this whole sort of privileging or, or giving room for, for attachment as a, as a thing in general. I think this last year, the COVID year 2020, I think more than any other time in history, probably, probably gave the world, if you will, a, a deep sense of what isolation really looks and feels like. And people, it was on everybody's mind. We were all talking about it. Obviously, routines were changed up. People's jobs were affected. People were were dying. I mean, there, there were a lot of really serious things going on. But everybody, regardless of what was going on for them, experienced some form of disconnection from not only their routines, but especially the, their relationships. I just talked to a friend the other day. He said, I finally got to hug my mom after one year. And he just talked about how awful that was to not be able to hug his own mom because they were worried about her health. And, and yesterday, in fact, I, was, I, I went to church for the first time for the two-hour block. Our, our ward finally opened it up and, you know, there were masks and we were trying to just do the best we could. But it just felt amazing. I mean, for all the times I would gripe in the past about three-hour church and then even gripe about two-hour church, I was so thrilled to be with my people for, for both hours yesterday. It just felt so good. So I think just recognizing, and I think, again, we're all doing that more now than ever, recognizing that this thing really matters, that a connection and attachment really matters. To me, that's where I want to start because we are, we're really defenseless alone. And, but, but we're getting a lot of confusing messages. We, we live in a culture that seems to prize individuality at the expense of community. And I'll, I'll go deeper into that here in a little bit, but, but where I want to start is let's not get into this either or with, you know, connection or individuality, recognizing that they're both two sides of the same coin. But I'm afraid that obviously because of COVID, but also because I think we live in a culture that prizes individuality, we've probably gone too far that direction in terms of a lot of our pop psychology advice. And a lot of the things we talk about in terms of just believing that the healthiest people out there don't need other people and that somehow we're doing it wrong if we feel, you know, insecure, lonely, you know, needy. A lot of people don't ever want to feel needy. Like, I don't need other people. I'll be fine. But the truth is, is that we're, we're built to live in community. We're built best. Our, our whole wiring is designed to thrive in community, to thrive in connection. Let me ask you about as far as individuality, make sure we understand that. So yeah. So what, what are some examples of maybe where we thought individuality was sort of the, the best move or, or maybe it was sort of the yeah. pitfall we stepped into where I thought, yeah, this is, I'm supposed to be my own person or and maybe put more context around that. Yeah. And again, I, I can't emphasize enough. We, we don't want to get into polarized thinking around this, that, mm-hmm. that one is better than the other. They both matter and they both are essential for our, our psychological well-being and, and to thrive. I'll give you a quick example to maybe put this into context. There was a, an author, her name is Ruth Whitman. She, she, she said she had moved from Britain to the U.S. and was lonely and had no friends. She's brand new to the country. And so she downloaded an app on her phone. It was a happiness app. And uh, 
she goes, you know, there are all these options. But there was this one thing it could do where it would message her every hour with some kind of a positive affirmation that she was supposed to repeat to herself over and over. Things like, I'm beautiful, I'm enough. And then she said, but the problem was that every time her phone buzzed with an incoming message, she said she described it as a, as a Pavlovian sort of jolt of excitement, thinking an actual person was trying to contact her. <laughs> and so she said that she would sort of realize the bitter truth that she couldn't shake that feeling that she was looking for community, looking for connection. And so, so she talks about, she talked about in, in this, uh, this thing I read from her that was so interesting. She says that a lot of the, the individuality messages that we've sort of digested and, and absorbed over the last, who knows? I mean, she, she talks about it being something that slowly crept up on us over a century, but definitely accelerated in the 60s and 70s is these, these ideas like happiness is determined not by what's happening around you, but what's happening inside of you. Mm-hmm. Happiness should not depend on other people. Happiness you know, is an inside job. And this, this whole journey of self-discovery acting like we're in some kind of a vacuum and we're not affected by other people. It's just this whole self-actualization idea. And again, at the expense of community, at the expense of connection. But we know from the research that our real happiness really depends uh, to a large degree what are the quality of our connections, the quality of our relationships. So if I'm sitting here alone trying to make myself feel better just with mantras and individual things, that will take me so far. It'll be, I'll be thinking about the quality of my connections. I'll be, but you know, you could almost balance that out perfectly and get a deeper connection when I feel good about myself, but through the connections with other people as a mirror, it's, it's a very interwoven web that really does predict happiness. And, yeah. and so, yeah, so just trying to just generate that alone really has its limitations. Yeah. That, that makes a lot more sense. And I think like sometimes in the context of church leaders, you know, encouraging somebody, working with somebody. It's often done, you know, maybe these appointments are happening in a bishop's office, you know, one-to-one, which is yeah. fine. But then it's like, maybe some of the solutions are, you know, scripture study, pray, you know, which are good. I don't want to diminish those, the power of scripture study or prayer, but it's like, if we're going just into a room by ourselves to study the scriptures and to pray, and obviously God's there, you know, we're interacting with God on some level, but still it's a, uh, if that's our only go-to solution, we, we're missing this community aspect of, well, hey, you know, wh- who's your friends in the ward or in your life or what do you do on weekends or just getting an idea of where they're receiving that sense of community and, and there's a lot of power in that, right? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, and, and, I, and I think about, you know, the story of Adam and Eve. I mean, from the very beginning, you know, he created Adam and then I believe, you know, this is my own personal belief that like as a, as just a way to sort of emphasize our need for connection, he staggered it, right? He didn't just put them both on the earth. I think there's this thing of it's not good for man to be alone. It's not good for a woman to be alone. We are hardwired from the creator to be pair bonders, to connect. And we just do better when we're connected. In fact, I mean, that was the very first thing that Satan did to them when they, you know, became mortal is that he tried to split them. He tried to separate them from God, from each other. And that whole hide, you know, conceal, get away, split apart. That's the, that's the exact opposite of how we're built and how we're wired. And then of course we know that God called them back out to, you know, and then surrounded them with even more people. Like, I mean, that's just angels and support. And, and that is, that is just really the, the plan. The plan is, it's, it's a group kind of thing, even though individuals absolutely matter. 
if we're going to really help people's mental health, we have to think in terms of relationships and attachments, not just trying to uh, fix the individual. It's a big part of why um, when I was deciding what I wanted to study, I knew I wanted to be some kind of a therapist. And as I really studied the different disciplines, sort of instinctively, this whole idea of marriage and family therapy systems, everything's interconnected, which, you know, social work and others also emphasize. But for me, it really spoke to me very specifically about the interconnectedness of, of relationships and, and how we're, we're just so deeply affected by, by everything going on in and, in and around us with other people. I mean, I think about like even, even just like hymns, you know, things that, that just move us so deeply. Uh, you talked about our, our individual relationship with God, even though we aren't physically, you know, touching and connecting with God in, in the kind of the human element. There's this very deep spiritual connection. You know, I, I think of the scripture in Isaiah, which is quoted in How Firm a Foundation, one of my favorite lines in hymns, Fear not, I am with thee. Oh, be not dismayed. I need thee every hour. Clasp, you know, in the arms of his love. I mean, we, we have these images and these hymns that, that really talk about connection and attachment as ways to comfort us. And they work. They work. When we're alone, when we feel lonely, my arm is reached out to you. Those kinds of things are just so comforting to us because that's in our spiritual, our physical DNA is to co is to co-regulate with another person, to regulate our bodies and our emotions and our spirits in in tandem with other people. Yeah, it's yeah. just so powerful. So I'm curious, like, uh, and hopefully I'm not jumping too far line uh, too far ahead in your outline, but. You know, when you have an individual that comes in and obviously they're struggling, whether it's depression, anxiety, or just life in general, and maybe you ask them about their community, about their connections and attachments, and they don't really have any. They're not, I don't, you know, maybe they're single or, or their marriage is sort of disconnected. And that's not readily available there as far as that healthy connection. Is there any like homework or, or assignment or, or effort that you encourage them to do in order to create that? And what does that even look like other than, well, you know, go find a friend or, I mean, what does that look like? Yeah, that's a great question. It's interesting. Like there's a tendency sometimes to, when somebody feels lonely, to sort of send them away acting like if they're coming to you and telling you they're lonely and we sort of send them away to go find somebody, we're missing the point because we're mm. right there with them. Yeah. I mean, they're, they're in relation with us right there. And sometimes I think we have this fear that if somebody expresses that loneliness or that whatever, that we're going to have to be their new best friend forever and never have a life for them. <laughs> yeah. But I think it's because we don't, we don't really understand the power of attachment and the power of the moment. People do so well just being witnessed. People do so well when the person right in front of them is taking in their experience and recognizing that that they're not alone in this moment. They're being seen by me. So yeah, I'm a therapist. People are paying me money. I'm not going to go home with them or hang out with them on the weekends. But in that moment, they can have a corrective experience that would give them hope and even a, a healing experience that someone is right there with them. And it's not just my job. Like I'm connecting human to human with them. And so a bishop or a ministering brother or sister or Maybe someone, you know, that you're in a role with them where maybe you're not part of their natural environment and in their home, you can offer that connection and trust it that if you genuinely have this heartfelt care and concern and interest in their experience right in that moment, you are now forming an attachment with them. You're using the power of the relationship 
to help them, a lot of times we feel like, well, I don't know what to do. And we're looking around all over the place trying to figure out how to help this person. But we've got an attachment right here that we can leverage that has a lot of power, has a lot of strength. And we, we sort of miss the obvious. And I have to remember that even in my, I've had times where I feel like my treatment, my work with somebody maybe isn't connecting very well. It's not landing. Maybe it's not exactly what they want or rather what, what I feel like is helping them. And I can't tell you how many times people have like just stopped me thankfully and said things like, what you're doing is helping me because I, you're just here with me. You care. And I'm thinking like, what technique or, you know, thing am I supposed to be doing? <laughs> and, and it's the relationship. Like we're, and we know, we know from the research and just in, in therapy, that 75, 80%. This is from Mike Lambert from BYU, his, his research, 75, 80% of what actually affects change in therapy is the connection between the therapist and the client. Wow. Like it's very, very little about technique and stuff like that. But so we're, you know, we're really leveraging something really powerful to be in a private, secure, trusting opportunity here with somebody, which, you know, a lot of us don't get in our natural environment. And I do believe to some degree, not entirely, that more people would, would heal outside of a counseling environment in their natural environment if we all could really just create more focused, nurturing attention and just really and I'm not minimizing my field or what we do. And I think that even people who have good relationships still need and benefit from counseling. We offer obviously a lot there, but there's a lot of people that really just need to know somebody sees them and hears them and takes them seriously. And we can offer that to people, our own children, our neighbors, our friends all day long. And it's very protective. Yeah. Yeah. That's really helpful. And, and it makes me think of like uh, those instances. I remember as, as a bishop, I, you know, obviously that connection was really, really helpful, you know, just being in the office together, talking it through, letting them know like, Hey, I'm here. Like this office is available to you as much as you need it. But then I also felt like kind of go maybe too extreme where I thought like I, as the Bishop was sort of my job to be their mentor, their, their connection, to have a relationship with them. Like, Hey, what you can text me anytime and call me on the rough days or, but then it kind of became that I never gave out connection outside of that relationship a chance either or encouraged it. I just sort of felt like, well, this is supposed to stay between you and I. And so let's work through it. And I remember, you know, appointment after appointment, getting to a point where I was like, man, why isn't this, nothing seems to be changing. And I got them in therapy and, and going back in hindsight, I really feel like, man, I wish I would have been more of a community stimulator for that individual, like looping people in or, you know, utilizing the Elders Quorum or Leaf Society more, those types of things. But well, yeah, what let's, let's talk that? about that. Yeah, let's yeah. talk about that for a second. Because yeah, I was I was talking about just leveraging the power of that moment, and I agree that a lot of the times you can't be as the bishop or as a therapist, we can't be there for them more than you know. Yeah. The, sometimes these structured appointments. So, I mean, I believe everybody everybody comes from some kind of a, a network or some kind of a, a place where there's some relationship. I mean, even if even people that. I mean, we don't make it to adulthood. We don't make it this far without somebody caring about us, you know, because if, if somebody is yeah. truly abandoned and alone, whatever, we don't survive. It's very difficult. So a lot of times people believe that they have no one there for them, but that's just not true. There are people that care. And even if there are, even if they can't think of anybody directly in their network who they could call on, there's a strong chance that there's people that, you know, you might know who who are the kind of person who could care and who could be a part of their life, even if it's 
as Elder Maxwell talked about, you know, an assignment, which is really another way of just describing organized love in his words. And, and so, yes, I think we have to get very creative. And the thing is, is that we're so, we're so cautious and vulnerable when we feel like somebody isn't sincere with us or we feel like we're a project. And so we tend to push it away. But if, if somebody really does care, if you really do want to enlist or engage somebody, they're going to have to understand that there will be some initial resistance or there might be some skepticism, but stay with it. And, you know, you hear conference talks about this, you know, like the, but the most, the most famous one that I love is the one where the, that priesthood leader goes into the ocean after that kid who's surfing. Yeah. And do you, do you remember that one? Yeah. Yeah. Like in his church clothes, right? <laughs> in his church clothes, in his suit, because the kid didn't show up to church. And, and he goes out there and, and the kid's out there surfing on a Sunday and the church leader wades out into the ocean. And, and it was at that point, the kid said that he realized this guy was serious and he really cared about me. And, and so I think that there's, there's just a lot to be said about just presence, about just consistency. And there's lots of places where we can find relationships. The church has, a, has an incredible built-in system of care and concern for each other. And, and ministering and callings, assignments. So if somebody's you know single, doesn't have doesn't have any family, if they're if they're really truly isolated or they're cut off from their family, hopefully there can be things done in, on the ward level, the branch level, to create some healthy relationships, some healthy attachments, to invite and to include and to 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 really care about people feeling included. Um, it just makes such a huge difference. Yeah, yeah, I agree. And anything else, any other thoughts around this idea of, you know, organized love or, you know, you know, project attachment where it's like you've, and that's sort of what ministering can feel like sometimes like, oh, I'm so supposed to let you into my house and you're supposed to ask me questions about my life. And even though I don't like it, I think it's just what we're supposed to do. But anything else like is to consider when trying to stimulate that, that attachment or community in a church setting? Yeah, yeah. And again, I think it's just just recognizing that the church that, you know, God organized the church to to be like this. Uh, I found a quote from uh, Elder Marley K. Jensen. This is what he says. He says, the church builds meeting houses, not hermitages. From the beginning of the restoration, the command has been for us to gather in communities where we can learn to live in harmony and mutually support one another by honoring our baptismal covenants. The inspired organization of the church provides settings where we can develop socially in church callings, meetings, classes, quorums, councils, activities, and a variety of other opportunities for association. We develop the attributes and social skills that help prepare us for the social order that will exist in heaven. And, and so I think that if we act like ministering is the only place where we can build relationships, then we're missing the point. I think about yesterday in church, we have a, a fantastic family in our ward friends of ours who have quintuplets <laughs> Wow! and needless to say, they're, they're all, I think they're two years old, these little quintuplets. And so these kids are, you know, they're, they're busy, they're active. And, and so, you know, ward members are, are jumping in and sitting on the edges, trying to trap children. And there's a community, there's a sense of you're not alone. We've got your back. We care about you. There's no assignment there. That's just happening because we all showed up at the same place together. And so the, so the church building is a place that just draws us into one place all at the same time. And there's, like I felt yesterday, and we were all back together finally. It just felt like, right, we're all here. We can see each other. There's needs happening. Last night, we were at a ward activity and just a walkabout, which is just gathering in the cul-de-sac on our street. And everybody's just talking outside, and there's some cookies. And it was just really casual. And 
we were standing around, my wife and I, with a, a couple, some other couples, and there was one woman there who's a widow, and she lost her husband a few years ago, and she's standing right there, and all the couples were telling stories about how they met, and my wife, one of the most aware people that I know, she just turns to this woman and says, tell me how you and Rob met. I'd love to hear your story. And so she's including this woman who probably hasn't had a chance to talk about her husband and how they met in a long time. And so the church, again, this was not some ministering thing. This wasn't some formal thing, but it's organized love. Like it's, we're all just showing up to things and nurturing and taking care of each other and being aware. And that's our baptismal covenant. And the structure of the church is perfectly designed for that. Even in classes and like, like he says, council meetings, uh, activities, callings. And so I just would say, you know, if, if you've got a, a mem- ward member who feels lonely, you know, I never felt so needed and so involved and so connected as when I was, you know, in a calling in a, that, you know, that needed me like that. So whether I was serving with, you know, back in the day, the, the scouts in those days or primary chorister, or other things like that, there's just places where we're needed in the, in the ward. And all those things really yeah. affect the attachment and the security we all feel. Yeah. You know, one recurring principle that's standing up to me throughout this, you know, whether you are a bishop in an office meeting one-on-one with person who's who's struggling or you're at a ward activity or you're at church, like this overwhelming need of just being present in that moment, right? It's not like, that's oh, right. well, the tactic is, is you ask every widow about their husband and how they met. Like, no, that, that person <laughs> asked that question because they were incredibly present at that moment and just being 100%. there, right? And, and sometimes we... We have a tendency of maybe overstructuring some of these activities we do, you know, and when in reality, it's like, you know, we just need some chili in the corner and uh, some tables, and then we'll handle the rest with uh, stimulating community that way, right? Yeah, I love that. And I, I think sometimes, and this is, again, this is more of a cultural commentary. I think sometimes because we're so involved in each other's lives as members of the church and we, we have sort of these markers like, you know, missions or things like that. A lot of times our conversation can, can border on lazy and, you know, we'll, we'll ask somebody things like, you know, where'd you serve your mission or, you know, or what's your calling or we'll ask these questions that sort of give us like some, some basic information about somebody. But then a lot of the times we don't take it further than that and just really get to know people and talk about them. We, we sort of put people in categories based on their calling or their activity level or things like that. And, I think we, we just can do so much to see people and to just talk with them about their yeah. life and about what's going on around them instead of just the regular church sort of conversation we often get stuck in. I, and I, I just want to add real quick, way. like a lot of times like the community building or the connections, all, a lot of time in the nuances of, of our church structure or activities or whatnot where you know, we're, we're now getting that age, Jeff, where we say, well, the church used to do this thing. And so we're, we're that old man now, but you know, just recently when we've gotten rid of that, the priesthood opening exercises, is that the official name, right? There's just like this yeah. moment there before that third hour where all the men were together. And it's like, there's always two or three guys that have, you know, they shared the, the, the dad joke and everybody sort of chuckles. And then, you know, the youth are standing up and maybe sharing a scripture or whatnot, like, and, you know, on paper, I can see why maybe the church wanted to simplify this and sort of get to two-hour church. You know, we don't have so many minutes to deal with, but to stimulate some of that nuanced, like, community and conversation yeah. where, yeah, maybe in Elder's Quorum, you do need to get to that conference talk, you know, and, and maybe, yeah, the teacher has prepared for a week and it'd be great to make sure that he has enough time. But 
to maybe just be okay and be present that moment as you talk about, you know, the game that was on last night or, you know, what, how's everybody's bracket doing in March or, you know, these things that really bring the humanness out and stimulate a lot of connection. Absolutely. Like when, you know, in the scriptures where it talks about they gather to talk, discuss the welfare of their souls. I think that to me is such an expansive phrase that obviously includes just the day to day. And the, I love that point, Kurt. Like, and, and again, I understand the church has, you know, there's reasons for why we structure things. And, but we have to be careful not to become so efficient in how we administer things that we miss the human connection, which people are looking for. I go to church to worship, but I also go to church for community and connection. And for me to act like I don't need all those other people, I'm lying to myself. I, I don't know what I thought about it before COVID, but since COVID and going back yesterday, I was just looking around going, man, you know, I, I do need these people. It's powerful. Yeah. I want to, I want to share something real quick about, you know, how we, t- so we can overcomplicate this in terms of building. And I appreciate what you're saying as far as, you know, my story about my wife asking this, this woman, this question about her husband, you know, you can't, you can't automate this. You can't, it's very contextual. It's really about showing up and being present and noticing what people need. There is a, an author, uh, Parker J. Palmer, who said, that the human soul doesn't want to be advised or fixed or saved. It simply wants to be witnessed, to be seen, heard, and companioned exactly as it is. When we make that kind of deep bow to the soul of a suffering person, our respect reinforces the soul's healing process, the only resource that can help the sufferer make it through. And I, I love that idea. I love that idea that when we can just make that deep bow to the soul of another person just by witnessing, caring, noticing, being present, not even saying something. It's like it activates this, the body's natural resources to heal. If we can trust that, a lot of people are going to feel a lot better instead of just trying to scurry around and try and act like we have to somehow do something to make people feel better or to connect. It's built into just being with another person. It's very powerful. Yeah, yeah. So I want to make sure, this has been a great discussion. I want to make sure I haven't taken down too many rabbit holes. Anything we've missed as far as a principle, a point to lay the foundation of this or to really deeply understand this concept of community and attachment? Yeah, let me just back up and give a quick Reader's Digest. Does anybody know what the Reader's Digest is anymore? I don't know. If that's <laughs> Another example of our, our age. <laughs> I just said that and I thought, wait a second. A quick summary of attachment science, just real quick, because... If we understand this as something that we're born with, we may not try and fight it so much because every one of us is born. And I, again, we can go to pre-mortal stuff, but I'll just start with birth on the earth here, is that we, we all have an inborn and lifelong need to be seen, held, recognized, touched, comforted by others. And any form of isolation is traumatizing at any age. I mean, it's, it's the thing they do to prisoners to punish them worse in prison as they put them in solitary confinement. Isolation is the most punishing thing we can do to a human being. It's, you know, and so the attachment system, John Bowlby, he's a, you know, a a researcher from the 40s, 50s on attachment. He found that the one essential question that our attachment system that we're wired with from birth is asking all the time, is my attachment figure, are they nearby? Are they accessible? Are they attentive? And we are physiologically asking this question from birth before our brains and our mouths can even catch up to it. And babies just know you stick them on the chest of the parent, hold them tight, they calm down. 
all the way to the, you know cradle to grave. An older person who's on their last leg, they still thrive and benefit tremendously in community with touch, being seen, connected. We don't outgrow it. And anytime that we feel disconnected, we start making attempts to try and regain connection. And that can be through asking directly, which is vulnerable and difficult, or we do it in counterfeit ways through trying to, you know, turn to like an addiction, like turn on Netflix just to feel like we've at least got, you know, something or an addiction to drugs or alcohol or pornography or spending money. We're always doing something to sort of co-regulate our physical and emotional selves. We're wired to co-regulate. We can self-regulate to a certain degree, but we really don't do it very well or don't do it for very long and until we really start to break down. And so at some point, we're going to require some sort of co-regulation from a human being, a substance, or some activity, something that's going to help us. And you see this in you see this all the time in public, you know, when people are waiting in line at the bank or the grocery store, you know, we, we just are standing there still and like people start to pull out their phones or they just talk to somebody or we just need some kind of call and response back and forth. So I want to give that context basically just to say the people that we love are the most powerful hidden regulators of our bodies and our emotions. It's a call and response. It's a feedback loop. It's a two-way loop like that. And regardless of our age or our emotional development, we'll need some kind of regulation from others. You know, you think of that, that uh, movie, what is it called? Castaway with Tom Hanks, where he's trapped on that island. And yeah, right. he, he makes friends with the volleyball, who's completely inanimate. But, yeah. but he develops a relationship with it where he can get the call and response. And he even argues with him, fights with him and punts him out of the cave and goes and finds him and they make up. And I mean, it's just, it's the human draw. And I don't know about you, Kurt, but I remember when I watched that, that didn't seem weird to me. Right. <laughs> you started to believe because it, I thought, right? Sure. Yeah. You know, if I was trapped, I'd probably want to talk to something too. So, so that's just, that's, it's like, oh yeah, yeah. It's, it's just so innate for us. So like it says in the, in the Bible, when we're born, it says it's not good for man to be alone. So we know that. So we were put in, you know, we have mother and father who take care of us as babies. And that's our first primary attachment, regulate our bodies and our emotions, and we feel secure. But then there's this commandment to leave mother and father and cleave. And that new person, our, our partner, our spouse becomes our new primary attachment. And for the rest of our, you know, if we're in this partnership, we're kind of co-regulating with this other person and needing to figure out who I am as an individual, who they are as an individual, but how we impact and affect each other, because we're both needing this security and the secure bond. And, and so, so much relational thriving and struggling is really trying to get that balance right. And then for people who aren't in a primary attachment relationship like that, right, where they're not really at home with mom and dad, but they're not in a primary bond with another adult, sometimes that can feel really tricky about, well, who do I co-regulate with? Who do I connect with? How do I get that secure attachment? And it's, that's just sort of the work that you have to do, which is to find community, find connection, find friends, find meaningful relationships that really give you that chance to be seen, to be connected, to be nurtured. And that's just the work of a lifetime. That's what we're all here to do yeah. is to learn how to live in Zion, learn how to live in community, learn how to be there for others and to let others be there for us. And just because you're married doesn't automatically mean that you have a good bond or a good connection. You have to work at it. You have to yeah. learn how to show up. 
Yeah, I love this context so, of I love this context of you know as far as co-regulating versus self-regulating. That yeah, we as a species, we really we we can't just rely on self-regulation. Those there's a million tactics you could try, and I'm sure you know therapists become very good at maybe walking people through those those tactics of self-regulation. But it's just interesting about our nature that we sort of need this co-regulation. And you even look at the institution of marriage, where it's like it's so difficult at times and you see end in divorce. And I think the statistics show the vast majority of people who go through a divorce end up remarried again. You know, you'd almost like try and reject the whole institution, but it's like, we need it. Right. And this is where, I mean, you make your living, right. That people are coming in and it's more that you're helping them figure out a way to co-regulate each other in a healthy, healthy manner. And then in the context of like singles, right? And we learned in this recent general conference that the the majority of, you know, the demographic of the majority demographic in the churches are those that are single, whether they have been married before or not. Or, and I love this context in the, or this concept in the context of like a, a singles ward or, you know, where individuals, again, we're not necessarily trying to help them find a match or a, a spouse, but how can we stimulate some co-regulation here? Is it through roommates or, you know, uh, through friends or, you know, I think it just is more helpful to approach the problem from that concept rather than trying to get people married or whatever. Oh yeah, exactly. Yeah. Cause marriage, marriage isn't the solution. Marriage is definitely a goal and it's an eternal principle. And it's, you know, I think I have no doubt that, you know, God designed that as, a way for us to feel really secure. But I'll tell you, there's a lot of people in marriages that feel very lonely. So the thing about how to get people that are feeling lonely to start to co-regulate with others is, I mean, just, just imagine, well, just think of like, you know, if you're a single person listening to this or someone who feels lonely, you know, even if you just go into public and you just smile at another person and they smile back, there's an element of some co-regulation going on there. There's an element of Like there's a call and response loop that feels really good. And that's just one very small example. There's also, I mean, even if you're sitting by yourself in your apartment and feeling lonely and and insecure and afraid, let me share with you, this is from Sue Johnson, who's an attachment researcher, creator of emotionally focused couples therapy. But she found that even individually, you can do a lot to call on your attachments to co-regulate you, even if those people aren't around. And let me just read this real quick. It's an interesting little exercise you can do. She says, sit in a quiet place, take some deep breaths. When you're ready, see if you can pinpoint a moment when your anxiety and the need for connection and comfort peaked in the last few days. So she says, one client told me that she wakes up from bad dreams and hears herself say things like, no one's here, no one sees me, I'm invisible, and she feels small. Okay. So now see if you can find a person in your life from the present or the past who creates a sense of safety and comfort in you. Even if we have had traumatic past, there is nearly always someone who reached for us or seemed to care about our pain. Focus on seeing their face. They are looking right at you. Tell them like a child would tell them as simply as possible what your anxiety feels like in your body and how lonely you feel with this fear. Keep it to a couple of sentences, then listen to what they reply and try to take it in. We are bonding creatures. The wonderful thing about the human brain is that our nervous systems hold on to and store key bonding moments. This means that you can actually use a sense of emotional connection from your past to soothe your nervous system now. Isn't that powerful? Wow, that is awesome. 
Yeah. And so, I mean, I, I think about this. I remember when I was called as a bishop, I had never felt more lonely than the day after I got called to be the bishop. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we, many have been there. I was shocked at how everybody all of a sudden just treated me differently. How all of a sudden, everybody who were my friends acted kind of weird about me now that I was the bishop, like, ooh, the bishop. It, it just was a weird shift. Yeah. It completely caught me off guard and I felt very lonely. And my wife, of course, felt the same way. We both were just like, what is happening? We just, you know, after it was announced and I was sustained, I, I just remember feeling so overwhelmed. And I remember praying one night within that first week. And I had the impression just to sort of visualize this here, but I, I was visualizing in my mind's eye, heavenly parents, ancestors, people that I, you know, just names that I have people like ancestors that I didn't know, but I just was trying to imagine them in my mind's eye just around me. And I felt surrounded by the most beautiful love that I wasn't alone because I couldn't count on anybody around me because everybody was acting weird. I was acting weird. We were all just kind of in this weird place. But there was a lot of security just in those relationships that I couldn't touch, but I could feel and see and access spiritually. And it was very regulatory. It just, it really kind of gave my body and spirit a breath and it was really powerful. And so when I read this from Sue Johnson, I thought, yeah, I've done that before. That was super powerful. Yeah. So yeah, yeah that's, that's something that's available to us anytime. Yeah. And I, and I appreciate just the, the simplicity of that type of activity and, you know, one thing yeah. I've learned from psychologist uh, Carrie Scarda, she talks about this as far as mindfulness and meditation, like going, like one way that she starts out her, you know, nightly prayers is, is she'll mentally go to like a, a campfire and she'll sit at that mm -hmm. campfire and just like watch, you know, what we do at campfires. We watch sort of the flames and just sort of take in that moment. And then she imagines the savior coming and like sitting by her and they don't talk. Yeah. He's just there, you know, right. and you can do almost the same thing with, family members or loved ones or ancestors. Right. And I've gone through this exercise. I still use it at least weekly. I go through this and it's just because sometimes like I'm so overwhelmed with my day or, you know, there's just so much coming at me. I don't, I don't want to sit down and go through a laundry list of gratitude and a laundry list of, you know, requests of blessings and things. I just like want to be steel for a moment and just like be with the savior and not because we have some transactional conversation happening, but it's just that presence of love and, and right. comfort that you get from these bonds that have already been established or were established at one point is so powerful. Absolutely. I mean, some of the most beautiful art I've seen of the Savior that I think resonates with me and a lot of people is him just holding us, right? Yeah. We're not sitting there in an interview across from a desk talking about our performance of this. It's, <laughs> it's attachment. It's so powerful. And like Sue Johnson says, our system is designed to store those bonding moments, whether they're spiritually, of course, but also from real relationships. I mean, I can think back to even a fifth grade teacher who cared about me. I remember that was real. I really felt like I mattered to her. With, of course, my parents and siblings and other relationships and even moments when I've argued with my wife and I feel lonely in my own marriage. I can go back and recall times where we, I really felt connected to her. And I hold on to that as an anchor to remember, okay, I'm not alone. I don't need to get dramatic about this. Like our body and our emotions have an incredible ability to store those bonding moments. We can also store painful ones and use that as evidence that nobody cares about us and nobody's there for us. But to me, it's dishonest to act like those are the only ones. There, we have both and we can yeah. draw on the, the attachment ones 
as real evidence that can regulate our bodies. And of course, I'm encouraging and you're encouraging those listening to go out and create new ones and to, or to re-engage or reconnect. Yeah. I'm amazed at how many times I've just called on my courage to reach out to an old friend, somebody I haven't talked to in years and just say, hey, I'm just thinking about you. I had a friend of mine from a roommate from BYU back in the day. He just called me and said, Hey, I'm just trying to be a better friend. I don't feel like I've been a good friend. How are you doing? We hadn't talked in years. And it was just so beautiful, so powerful. And it was like, who cares that we haven't talked forever? It's just good to be with you. Yeah. So there's just lots of ways we can do this. It's powerful. Yeah. One thing that I've mean some other friends have talked about is we call them like yeah, the phone calls of of the 90s where you would just like call people, right? You didn't text them in advance and say, hey, are you available? Or, <laughs> or call me when you got a minute. It's like, I just call you. And it's, and you don't have any purpose other than, hey, like, what's up? Like, what are you doing? And I'm just driving home from here. And, that, and then it's just like this normal conversation we used to have in the 90s and 80s, like where, where now it's like, oh, well, so I've already been stalking you on Facebook. So I don't really need to call you because I know that you're remodeling your living room and so I don't really need to talk about that. I've gotten that update, but there's, it's removed the human connection of that relationship. You know, it's, it's interesting so how our, our life has changed. Yeah, so true. So, I mean, taking those risks and opening up to other people is vulnerable. We don't know where it's going to go. We don't, you know, there's, there's this fear that will be rejected. But in my experience, the chances of that happening are very low. We're, we're probably pretty aware that this person cares enough about us to respond. And we can create those experiences anytime you want. It's just our own fears and own, you know, narratives that get in the way. Yeah. Um, yeah. So let me, if I can, let me share a couple of thoughts on uh, maybe some different categories about how to really leverage attachment um, awesome. in, as, in, as individuals and in our families and our ward. Um, but real quick, I, I just want to, before I do that, I just want to say um, we like if we really understand the power of human connection and improving our mental health and our functioning, I think we would take that risk more often. We would do more to, to privilege that and give it a space instead of just trying to look for individual solutions of fixing the individual. Um, attachment uh, increases our confidence. It, cre it decreases depression. It reduces anxiety. It makes us less aggressive. Uh, we're less susceptible to shock or stress or even physical pain. We're more flexible. We're more curious. We have more self-awareness. We have more other awareness. We problem solve better. I mean, the list goes on and on and on. The benefits of attachment. It's incredible. And uh, okay. So as individuals, uh, like you said, I'm going to go back to the social media thing you just talked about there, Kurt, where a lot of times we'll, we'll sort of live in this virtual land and believe that we're connecting, of course. As Sherry Turkle said, right, we're all alone together. We're not really feeling connected. And so uh, one commentator compared the difference between real life interaction and social media conversations to the difference between eating an apple or eating a bowl of Applejack cereal. You know, <laughs> if you're starving and you have absolutely no source of any sustenance, then eat the Applejacks. It's fine. It's better than nothing. But if you're sitting in an apple orchard and you're eating Applejacks, that's probably not the wisest course of action. It's a poor substitute for the original. So this is an opportunity to recognize most of us, truth be told, are sitting in the middle of an apple orchard. Now, granted, during COVID, when we were all isolated and we were all stuck at home, especially our older population in nursing homes, social media was probably the only way they could connect, thankfully, to somebody. And it was fine. It got yeah. a lot of people through it. 
But here we are, things are lifting, life is going back to normal, thankfully. And let's start eating apples. Let's connect with people. Let's get in front of each other. Let's have face-to-face. We are the only ones that are probably in our own ways about this. Like there really aren't that many barriers anymore to do this. So take the risk to connect with others. Everybody is feeling just as insecure and maybe alone as you might be. And nobody sort of has the corner on this. Like there's not just a, a group of people out there who are just like so confident that they don't worry at all about their own attachments. Like we're all worried about whether we fit in or not, or how we, you know, it's just a human condition. So for individuals to strengthen yourself, yes, you can call on past attachments. You can do those mindfulness kind of exercises I just talked about, but let's put down the apple jacks and go out and start eating real apples and connecting with people. It's powerful. Before I move on to families, Kurt, anything you want to say about that or comment on or add? Well, I'm just... uh... I'm such a serial lover. I'm sort of offended right now of the comparison. <laughs> but uh, no, I forgive you. I forgive you. But uh, it is this, uh, I found in my own life, just this this routine or this effort of connection and attachment. Like this this home we're currently living in, we've only been here like six six weeks. And so, especially during time where, you know, we've just experienced a pandemic that's isolated a lot of people. My wife and I have decided to be proactive in our effort of connecting with our new neighbors and our ward members and whatnot. And so awesome. every Thursday night, we've just been having an ice cream night. And it's so interesting because it's sort of annoying, like going up to it. I'm like, you know, do I really want people coming over tonight? Right. No, I don't know. Like, should we really keep doing this? And, but it's interesting every time they come, like, I love it. Like, absolutely. They, they By the time they leave, we're like, oh, I'm so glad we do this. Those are such great people. And learn some things. And it's amazing just sort of this relationship as humans we have with connections that we need it so bad, but sometimes it's just hard to get ourselves to do it. But Absolutely. Yeah. And I, I think that the, the inspiration to, to build wards together geographically, instead of yeah. just you choosing where you go is to me is, is just so, so divine only because if we were left to ourselves, we would judge and self-select and create the smallest little tribe of people that made us feel good. And, and it would leave people out. But now we get to be with a group of people that we wouldn't necessarily choose, but then we, we discover and find that there's a lot more commonality and there's, it just builds a bigger, more beautiful community. I just think that we are in the church, we are placed in a context where we have access to all kinds of opportunities, like you said, just to start an yeah. ice cream social. I mean, it just, it's built in. So I love that. Thank you. Yeah. So I want to make sure we, we don't miss the the main points here. So this is, as far as, this is these are tactics of maybe stimulating connection or how did you describe Yeah, so it? this is, this is, yeah, thank you. So for individuals, if you're thinking about yourself just as an individual, what can I do to start to create and, and nourish and build more attachment and take advantage of this co-regulation that's available to me? Okay. And so the way, yeah, so just to review the way, again, the, the Apple Jacks, Apple thing, that's basically like just have the courage to just go get the real thing. Social media is great. I use it. It's fantastic. But there are real people right? Eating ice cream in your living room, hanging out, taking that risk. And if you need to, if you're by yourself and alone and you feel like nobody's there for you, even just to get a little bit of a rescue breath, if you will, we can use that meditative thing I described of calling on past attachments to feel like we're not totally alone. 
I've done both of those and they all really help. So those are yeah. a couple of places to start. Cool. In our families, let's talk about how to build stronger attachments in our families. Again, all of this is about improving our mental health. As parents, our children are a mix of dependency. They need us, but also trying to be independent. And we need to nurture both of those in our kids. And we want to create ultimately an interdependent environment so that when they're adults, they know how to be themselves and be their best selves, but they also know how to rely on and, and offer support to other people. And the way we do that, you know, again, simplistically is we just teach them that we'll be responsive to them. We'll be there for them. We'll be engaged with them. So the world feels safe and predictable, but we also honor and trust that they'll figure it out. Yesterday, my almost 20 year old son who's moved out is, um, got a flat tire and he called me just to talk through it. And I wasn't in a position to run out and help him, but just calling and talking through it with dad, I was responsive. I talked about it. Somebody else was able to come help and we got it figured out. But even an adult who's on his own, living his own life, there is still that sense of like, at least I'm not alone in this. There was nothing I could do to help him with physically with that tire, but there's something about knowing that you're not having to just to do this alone. Are there times that he or other people might have to do things totally alone and be independent? Absolutely. And he could. But if we can be responsive to our kids and not just push them away and act like they should just do things on their own. They'll learn to trust their own judgment. They'll learn to trust others and they'll learn how to be more independent and also dependent. We want that balance to happen. It's like when kids are playing sports, they're out there doing their thing independently, but you know, they're still looking back to see if you're watching. That's just how we're built. We need to know someone's there for us, even though we're doing our own thing. Yeah. And one and, thing I appreciate from what you're saying is that to recognize that maybe each child or each individual in the family may need that in different ways. Right. 100%. Uh, and sometimes we, especially as parents, we sort of get in this mode of like, I'm, it's my job to establish fairness. And, you know, Jimmy doesn't get that. So Billy, you got to be okay with that or whatever. And things makes me think of this every morning, my six-year-old son, as when he wakes up, comes into our bedroom and wants to snuggle with mom. Well, mom is breastfeeding our youngest child right now. And so, and that's usually when she's breastfeeding him. And it's like, and here's dad over there like, hey, I'm game, you know, if you want to snuggle with me for a minute, but it's like, no, like this will not do. And so it's just this sort of this dance that we have to get in like, okay, like I recognize that maybe I can't fulfill that need for you right now right. and we'll, we'll work it out. Absolutely. Yeah. There's always this balance of independence, dependence, back and forth. But if kids grow up in an environment where there's that kind of responsiveness, even though it's messy, they still thrive. Yeah. They still thrive. We actually don't thrive when we're rejected, isolated, ignored, that kind of stuff. So err on the side of connection, err on the side of trying to figure it out, and people do pretty well. And just show up. Just show up over and over and over again. If you don't know what to do, just show up. I've had loved ones that have that I've tried to support and be there for, you know, dealing with depression, anxiety, addiction, trauma, you name it. Like, this is stuff that's part of the human condition. And like uh, Robert Karen said, he says, in love, you don't need to be rich or smart or talented. You just have to be there. Just paying attention, mm -hmm. showing up over and over again. Trust that in your families. I think a lot of the times we have a tendency to be afraid that our kids will be too needy or too dependent or too clingy. And as long as there's a balance of independence and dependence, it'll work fine. But again, sometimes we're, we allow our kids to be too dependent or we allow them to be too independent. And that sweet spot is really what, what you're going for as a parent.
Yeah, that makes sense. Um, yeah. And just, you know, do as much as you can together as a family, but also honor the times our kids want to be alone. My, my 16 year old is on his 17th birthday. He wanted to go on a solo backpacking trip for one night and just wants to have that time with himself and God just to sort of feel what that's like alone. And Totally supportive of that. I think that's fantastic. But he's carrying all of us with him because he knows that we're also interested in how this is going to be for him. So he's doing it from a platform of security and community. And a lot of people know about it. They're going to ask him about it. So we never really just do things alone. We have people in our lives that care about us. And so we need to hold on to that and also make sure we're offering that to, to each other. And then let's talk about the church. Again, the church is built for this. And it's, it's built as a community. It's built as, like we talked about, geographical boundaries that pull in all kinds of personalities and people that we wouldn't necessarily pick as our friends. But it gives us a chance to rub shoulders with and even throw sparks with uh, different personalities and, and different types of people, which is totally inspired. But again, I think about all the places where we're put in opportunities to really co-regulate and connect and kind of this messiness. I think about presidencies, right? That can be really messy and also really amazing friendships and support, missionary companionship, same thing, ministering assignments, councils, all those things. I think about Elder Holland and, you know, a few years ago when they when they renamed it from home teaching to ministry and they really emphasized a higher, holier way of doing it, which simplified it in a lot of ways, but also made it much more human. And gave everybody a chance just to take a deep breath and say, we're overcomplicating this. We're trying to make this too, you know, duty bound instead of just seeing people as people and connecting with them through a text message or through a phone call or spending time in person or just caring. It's just, I love the fact that we're talking about it this way, because to me, it's, it's just much more humanistic than, than it's ever been. I just think with ministry and it's like, do something. It doesn't matter. Just to know we're on somebody's mind is yeah. so regular. It's regulating, it's comforting, it's secure. And there's a thousand and one ways to do that in 2021 to know somebody's on our mind. And it's just uh, built into the system. And so I, I think that hopefully these, these three areas, individually, family, church, these are just three areas that I pick. You can see maybe there's some ideas on, on how to, co-regulate, how to connect, how to privilege attachment. But at the core of it, I'll say this a thousand times, do something, just engage, act, speak up, reach, just err on the side of closeness. And we, we just tend to do better. Our mental health improves significantly when we have that connection with other people. Yeah. You know, I appreciate this, this content, uh, this concept in the context of, of the church, you know, we've, said throughout this this conversation just how awesome it is the the way the church is structured and organized and oftentimes we default as we define our ward or quorums or relief society we often default to the word of organization this is an organization and that's sort of primary like we we're primarily an organization and a community secondarily but if we swap those more of like well first let's approach this as a community and then we'll organize and, and get some things done and and it's sort of this passive aggressive you know, tug of war between these two concepts, but there is such, you know, we, if we, when we recognize it as a community, so much good can get organized and, and get done that way. Absolutely. I love what the, the reframe there that the community exists because of the organization. The organization does formally bring us together, but for right. ultimate purpose, you're right. It's community. And, and it was yeah. that way, you know, at the waters of Mormon, it's been that way, you know, Adam and Eve, like they, they were put in community together to, to go out and 
battle the world and figure things out. And we can, we can handle anything in this world as long as we're not alone. I mean, loneliness is just so punishing and so difficult, but it doesn't have to be that way. Nobody has to be alone. Nobody has to be alone. Yeah. Awesome. Awesome. Well, Jeff, this has been a, a, a great discussion. I don't know. I've got maybe one more question for you, but what, is there any point or concept that we haven't hit on that you want to make sure we hit on before we wrap up or did we? Did no, we I think it? that's good. I, I fear that I'm repeating myself too much. So I think that we've covered it. <laughs> <laughs> no, this is great. And I was going to say, if, if if there's anybody out there who isn't quite sure of anything, what Jeff said, just go watch Pixar's Inside Out and you'll get an idea of how these <laughs> these concepts work. Right. That's why it's the every therapist's favorite Pixar movie is inside. <laughs> so that's well, um, again, one more question, but first what maybe reiterate where people can, can connect with you or find you, your podcast, all those things, plug yourself. Yeah. The easiest way to find me is on my website. All my social media links are on there. My podcast, all my, all everything I'm doing, I, I just run through my website and that's because my name is impossible to spell. You can just type in from crisis to connection.com. And you'll find me there. So, or you can Perfect. go to jeffstewart.com. But, you know, again, good luck with that. Thanks, mom and dad, for giving yeah. me the craziest <laughs> name to spell. <laughs> but that. yeah, that's where you can find me. I write, I write a weekly column and I'm happy to respond to your questions as well or find me on social media, I'm on Instagram and Facebook. So great. Well, Jeff, last question I have for you is just considering in general this concept of connection, of attachment. What final encouragement would you give to leaders if you're in a room full of, Bishops, Relief Side Presidents, Elders Quorum Presidents, what encouragement, what final encouragement would you give them in order to stimulate community and attachment in their own area? Yeah, that's great. I think, first of all, just recognizing your own life, what your own comfort level is with connection to others. Because if, if you, you know, if you really struggle to connect or want to relate to others, or you're always just trying to be alone and like you don't privilege or value that kind of connection, it's going to be hard for you to suggest that as a solution to people who really need it. And so, you know, a lot of times we come from families or come from backgrounds where maybe attachment didn't work out so well, or we might struggle with relationships. Recognize that you are wired for connection. I am wired for connection. And if you're not sure what else to do, if you're not sure what else to recommend, err on the side of trying to create more connection, more community, more co-regulation, even with the person sitting in front of you, trust that. And lean into people, lean in, try and create more closeness. People will thrive and feel more secure that way instead of trying to do it from a distance or just isolating people by not responding or just leaving people alone in their pain. You're in a unique position to offer and extend that type of security to people just by caring, by being present, by showing up or involving other people to show up in that person's life. It makes the world a difference. That concludes my interview with Jeff Stewart. So much appreciated that. I hope you did as well. You've got to hear more of these types of interviews during the Mentally Healthy Saints virtual summit. Go to leadingsaints.org slash mental health in order to see all the details and to watch for free. There's going to be so much information. So bring your notebooks and sign up for free for this virtual summit and you will not regret it. It will definitely help you be a better leader. So go to leadingsaints.org slash mental health. And don't forget to register for free for the Mentally Healthy Saints Virtual Summit by texting the word LEAD to 474747 or visiting leadingsaints.org slash mental health. It came as a result of the position of leadership which was imposed upon us.
by the God of heaven who brought forth a restoration of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And when the declaration was made concerning the only true and living church upon the face of the earth, we were immediately put in a position of loneliness, the loneliness of leadership from which we cannot shrink nor run away and to which we must face up with boldness and courage and ability.